Our sermon text today will be in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to read two verses, verses 13 and 14. Matthew 15, verse 13 and 14, the words of the Lord Jesus. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Perhaps we should read verse 12 since Jesus' words are an answer. Verse 12 says, Then came his disciples and said unto him, Jesus, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after that they heard this saying? Then he says in response, Every plant which my heavenly Father had not planted shall be rooted up. And that will be our primary text. Uh, we're going to title this The Lord's Planning. We could have equally titled it The Lord's Rooting Up because the text speaks of the Lord planning, inferred there, and uh, also certainly the action of rooting up. He's speaking of agriculture. The reference is, the metaphor is, in other words, and it's getting springtime here, and a lot of people got getting dirt under their fingernails on their mind. But it's interesting to think that agriculture or the concept principle of agriculture is one of the oldest concepts known to man. I mean, it goes right back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And the idea of planting and plucking up is very clearly understood in agriculture. I mean, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3 and 2, there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which was planted. I mean, that's an old concept, isn't it? But God has been in the planting business from the very beginning. And it's interesting to think about this. When we read of creation in the Bible... Very early on there in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8, it speaks of the fact that God planted a garden there in Eden, called it Eden, east of Eden, what have you. So God planted a garden. So in that respect, the first planter of any kind was God, just like as he was creator of all things and so forth. Not surprising there at all. But we could also get from Genesis there in the second chapter and verse 15 where God made the first man and it says he placed him in the garden and he put him in there to dress it so the implication is he not only planted the garden but he made man and planted man in the garden didn't he and uh, to dress it now uh, just a brief word on dressing the garden I don't know what that involved, but it was not what it would be today. Adam dressing the garden before sin entered in was not going to be the same as what Adam had to do after sin came into the picture. And in fact, I would simply say to you that when we read that, that God put him in the garden to dress it or to supervise it or whatever, the word speaks of responsibility, not of labor. Okay? Because the labor certainly came into view after they sinned and God said, by the sweat of your brow, and you know, uh, you're going to earn your living and so forth. Alright. So God did some planning there. However, when Adam and Eve sinned, 
God drove them out of the garden. So the implication again would be that God plucked up or rooted out or kicked out the very thing that he had planted in the garden, didn't he? So here's that concept of our text of planting and rooting up with God, the first man and woman, and the fall. And it is something that goes throughout the Bible. It is something, if you're a student of the Bible, you're very familiar with concerning Abraham, his seed, and the nation of Israel. God made covenant promises to a man named named Abram, later Abraham, and he showed him a great huge expanse of land that he gave the title deed to Abraham and his descendants. Now Abraham never planted very long in one place, did he? He was a sojourner in the land, but the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was literally implied in covenant that God would plant them and their seed in the land that God promised to Abraham. Now, this is clearly seen in Genesis chapter 15, or rather Exodus 15. If you want to look at it, I'm briefly going to touch on this a little because this idea, again, of planting and plucking up is foundational with God's dealing with the elect nation of Israel. It continually shows up throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 15 is Miriam's song, you might remember, of rejoicing after the Egyptians were destroyed in the Red Sea. And in verse 17 of Exodus 15, it says here, uh, in fact, 16 for uh, context, latter part of 16, O Lord, till till the people pass over which Thou hast purchased. Okay? So that is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the Israelites. Verse 17, Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Now, you know the process by which that happened. I don't need to go into a lot of detail here, but Joshua was the one who literally... Uh, helped divide the land and the 12 tribes initially got planted in the land, did they not? And the covenant had a conditional promise on staying in the land, not on the deed of the land, but on staying on the land. And that involved obedience. In the little book of Amos, chapter 9 and verse 15, we read these words, after they got plucked up out of the land, And remember, they got plucked out of the land, went into Babylonian captivity. They had suffered other things at other times of their enemies in the land because of disobedience. But in the Babylonian captivity, God kicked them out of the land. God uprooted them. God plucked them out just like He said He would and had warned them because of their disobedience. Well, Amos tells us in the last verse of the ninth chapter of Amos in verse 15, again, about God going to plant them back again. And I will plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Following upon on that, let's turn back to the book of Isaiah. 
and read a little bit more about that promise. In Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 21, Thy people also shall be all righteous, they shall inherit the land forever. And notice I'm reading this for this context, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I may be glorified. That's going to be very important as I continue on here. But again, think of that with any gardener or farmer in mind. Whether you're planting one plant in one pot, or you are a farmer with a big tractor planting thousands of acres, the one who is doing it is planting the seed or the branch of his planting, the work of his hands with an object purpose in mind. Here, God says that I may be glorified, the farmer to make a living or the farmer to sustain life. Or maybe a, a lady just wanting to look at a pretty flower. Whatever. But it's with a purpose or design in mind. Look on then just a few verses further. Familiar passage that Jesus quoted when his personal ministry in this reading the synagogue. 61 of Isaiah, the first three verses. I'll read it quickly. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Note verse 3. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, again, that he might be glorified. Okay, so that pretty well lays it all out there for us, doesn't it? About the Lord's planning. We talked about Adam and Eve. We talked about Israel here. Bottom line is, as we were talking in Sunday school this morning, we could attribute everything to the Lord's planning when it comes to life of any kind, couldn't we? I mean, we're not taking anything out of context. The Bible affirms that. We read from Mars Hill in Acts 17 this morning, the words of Paul. He giveth life and breath to all things. So whether it be plants or animals or humans, all life, it literally is the handiwork of God, the planning of God, and He can give it life plant it. He can plant that seed, whether it's in a woman's womb, an animal's womb, or the germination of a seed that'll make a plant. Again, all that life comes from divine design by God. And at any time, he can pluck up that life, can he? You know, people don't like that thought. It's not a pleasant thought, but it is a humbling thought, and it is a true thought. That if God plants it, whatever it is, He can at any time pull it up by the roots. And when we think of people, you know, so often, I know what people mean. I don't need to split hairs here. But many times when a child, an adolescent, a young man or a young woman, even a middle-aged person, is life ends, Often we hear, or it'll be on the little funeral thing, they've taken before their time. Well, nobody was taken before their time. 
Who are we to say that everybody deserves to live 70 years? The Bible says that's an average lifespan, but it's not a guarantee for everybody. And you think about it in this concept. You can plant a little small plant or a seed. And when that thing barely sticks its head out of the ground, if you want to, you can go out there and pull it up. You can say, well, I pulled it up before it's time. Well, I understand what you mean. You pulled it up before it got mature. But you planted it, you can do what you want to with it. You could, you could have waited until it started blooming and pulled it up. And yeah, you, you pulled it up before it's time. It still didn't reach maturity. But again, God is under no obligation for anybody to reach maturity. Just like you and your plant. And I, and I won't get into this, but again, you've gardened and I've gardened too. And there's some plants I wish I'd have pulled up a long time before I pulled them up. When I finally saw they wasn't going to amount to nothing, you know. But God does all things well. So, whether mature or immature, human life, plant life, animal life, God's the one that gives it and God's the one that can pull it up by the roots at any time. And the thought here is when you pull something up by the roots, it's, it's overrated. I mean, you know, a lot of things you can snip off the top of the ground and it'll, it'll, with the root system still there, it'll come back. But the idea of pulling up by the roots means it's done and it's over with. Now the text that we want to speak on here is speaking metaphorically by our Lord about persons. And it is spiritual. He's not talking about physical life when he says every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. And then he gives the reference to the Pharisees of being blind leaders of the blind. He's talking in a spiritual context by metaphor, but he's speaking of individual persons, just like individual plants is the metaphor. And he's speaking of a time judgment because this verse fits numerous others and some of them will bring to your attention today in the Gospels, a time of judgment when those that are His will be gathered into the barn and those that are not His are going to be plucked up by the roots and burned. So let's talk about the Lord's planning. The first point is the Lord's planning, and we're talking spiritually here. We're talking about the soul. We're talking about being saved. We're talking about going to heaven. We're talking about eternal life. All that the Lord does, as we read over there in Isaiah, has the purpose of God glorifying or being glorified by everything that He does and everything that He has created. You know, if, you, if I asked you, well, why did God save you? I only know of one or two really biblical answers you could give me. You might give me a lot of answers, and I might give you answers, but there's only really two. And the first one would be to glorify himself. You know, the Bible talks about saving sinners or saving or delivering or being a Savior for his great name's sake. You know, I pray that sometimes. I've prayed that many times over the years. Praying for lost people. They're not worth saving. And I don't pray to God that He would save them because they're worthy. That would be unbiblical and unscriptural. But many times I do say this. God have mercy upon them. And that's my expression and desire. 
They don't deserve it. Do it for your great namesake. God manifest yourself in glory by saving them like you saved me. You know? For your great namesake. And so whatever the Lord does, it's done with the desired purpose and effect of bringing glory to Himself. Now, again, we could get into the garden again and you could look at something somebody's planted, cultivated, and, and, and what have you, blue, whether it be beautiful flowers or things that you're going to eat or what have you, you could say, man, that's a beautiful garden, Lester. Man, you have done a good job. Or, or uh, Elaine, you know, I mean, man, that, that's a testimony of your hard work, the work of your hands, right? I mean, I don't go out there and worship the plants because they're pretty. I know somebody did that. Put something in. That's why God plants. That's why God does what He does, whether it's in a material realm, but especially in a spiritual realm. And of course, what does the Bible say about the plants or the planting? His people. What's the design? Well, that's a subject called fruit bearing, isn't it? God's desire is, and we'll take this directly from the 13th chapter of Matthew and the parable of the sower, God's planting is with design that it will bring forth fruit. Jesus told his disciples, you didn't choose me, I, did, I chose you, and ordained you that you should bring forth much fruit. So God has, as in Sunday school this morning, the right that if he has planted, he has watered, he has fertilized, he has cultivated, he should expect fruit to be born, right? I mean, he has that right. Now, let me sum up what our fruit is, and this is just quick because we've got to move on. You could preach and preach on this, but fruit bearing is this, whether it be men or angels, obedience. All fruit bearing can be summed up in obedience. What kind of fruit are you going to bear? Obedience to God's Word. Now, the details of that is, is far-reaching. And that's why we could preach on it forever. But fruit bearing by the Lord's planning of God's people, the elect, is manifest in obedience. Now, let's go back to that parable of the sower and talk about how the Lord's planning takes place. Again, we're talking about spiritual fruit here, right? Well, God uses human means. We're not going to go through all that in the parable of the sower. You should be familiar with it. But it says a man went out to sow, right? And not only is that man, was it the son of man, Jesus, but it was also the disciples he sent forth. It's the church that has been commissioned to go forth and preach the gospel to every creature, isn't it? So it pleased God, Paul said to the Corinthians, by the foolishness of preaching... To save them that believe. That's God's ordained means of planning spiritual life in the deadness of the human soul. Okay? Human means. The proclamation of the gospel by the servants of the Most High God. Now from the parable of the sower in the 13th chapter, we can see the seed ended up in four places. And in three of those places, it was unproductive. Three out of four. The wayside, the stony ground, and the place where the thorns choked it out, right? Come up in some places. It didn't come up in some places. But three out of the four, 
There was no fruit born. One, it didn't germinate. Twice it did. Still didn't produce no fruit. Only on the fourth, the good ground, it says, did it not only germinate, spring up, but matured and produced fruit. The lesson there is very simple. Naturally, in a natural sense, the Word of God does not have any effect upon sinners. It just won't do it. A sinner's heart, in other words, is not fertile ground for the gospel. It is bad ground for the gospel. The gospel is needed there, but the heart of the sinner is not fertile or receptive to it. I would simply say to you that good ground that that seed fell on and bore fruit, that ground is what we would say in a spiritual sense was prepared ground. You know, a lot of times you did, there's not many things you can just go out and throw seed on top of the ground and it's going to come up. A lot of much requires soil preparation, doesn't it? A tilling of the ground. And the inference here that I'm getting at is unless God does something to the human heart, the gospel seed is not going to find any lodging there. And it will not germinate there. God not only has to see that the seed is sown, but God's got to prepare the place where the seed's going to fall or nothing's going to happen or germinate. And when I say germinate, I'm talking about spiritual life, right? Well, thank God He does that. He does prepare the heart. He does till the ground. And He does that by what we call the new birth and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me read it to you very quickly in a nutshell. I love this verse of Scripture because it puts the two together so concisely. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, Knowing, brother and beloved, your election of God, how do we know? For our gospel, the seed, came not unto you in seed only, but in power and in holy, the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. You see, there's, there's the stirring of the soul, the tilling of the heart, the new birth that makes the gospel seed received and believed and accepted. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Paul was the sower of the seed. He was sowing it amidst of idolaters and yet it found lodging, germination and came forth and bore fruit and a church was established and everything else there with the Thessalonians. So that is God's means and God not only calls the sower and gives them the seed and sends them forth, but God also works in the hearts of the recipients. If He did not, the gospel would never be believed. The gospel would never be accepted. It would never be obeyed. And there would never be any fruit. But when it is, it is manifest that these are the elect of God, as I just read to you in verse 4. So that is all the Lord's planning, isn't it? The Lord does every bit of it. The Lord had to prepare the human heart. The Lord had to quicken, quicken that sinner so that the gospel would be received. It's also spoken of in Scripture as the, the eye being open to see, the ear being open to hear in that regard. And what does the Bible say about those who are of the Lord's planning? Well, I love what it says in the book of Psalms at the very beginning. Blessed is that man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That's the effect. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. Another effect. One was a negative, he don't. One is a positive, he do. Here's what he is. Here's the Lord's planning. 
of spiritual seed in his people. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he doeth shall prosper. That is the life of the Christian, the one who has been spiritually born again and obeyed the gospel. Now I want to leave one final thought with you on this, the Lord's planning, before we go to the Lord's rooting up. What happens to that tree? It says there he's going to prosper, he's going to flourish, and what have you. What happens when old man death comes along? Does a tree die? Does death kill that which has been spiritually planted? No, death can only kill the mortal part, can it? It can only kill the body. And let me give you this. If you are a Christian today, and you die today, or if I die today, this body may die. It will die. It will be planted in the ground. One day it's going to come forth again. But in the meantime, the born-again soul of the believer, you know what it's going to be done? It's just going to be transplanted from here to yonder till it gets that new body. I mean, it's no different. Have you ever planted something and uh, it outgrew the pot? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you do seedlings and things, you you got to do something with them eventually because them little bitty things, you get them in there to get them started, they need more room. Well, the same thought is here. In glory, in eternity, we're just transported. We're just transported from this place to a better place. From an old body to one day a new and glorified body. And we'll keep on prospering and we'll keep on growing and we'll keep on just like that tree planted by the rivers of water because we're going to be planted by the river that runs from the throne of God in eternity. The Lord's planting. What a wonderful concept. Let's talk about the Lord's rooting up or plucking up. The text says, every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted. Okay, so we just talked about the ones He has planted. What about the ones He's not planted? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? If God didn't plant them, somebody else did. And again, we're talking about that which is supposed to be spiritual or that which professes to be a Christian. Namely, in this case, in context, the Pharisees. We see them there mentioned in the previous verses. Then Jesus said in verse 14, they are blind leaders of the blind. Well, let me ask you, who's in the business of planning besides the Lord? Well, we will draw another parable into account with this to answer that. This also is in Matthew chapter 13. After the parable of the sower, we got the parable of the wheat and the tares in verses 24 through 30, don't we? And the Bible, to sum up there, makes it clear that the Lord does some planting, and that's the wheat, and that produces fruit, and that's going to be brought into His garden, I mean into a harvest, into the barn, not the garden, the barn. But lo, something else got planted, right? That was undesirable. It's called tares. And it grows up with the wheat and it looks like the wheat and to a non-discerning eye it all looks the same. 
But it's brought to the man's attention that, hey, there's some counterfeit stuff growing out there among the wheat. What do you want us to do? Go out there and pull it up? And remember, the, he said, no, no, because if you do, and in fact, it's the same word as used here, shall be rooted up. That's the only other time that word's used in the New Testament because the wheat will be rooted up. He says, hold off. It's the Lord's will and purpose. They're going to grow up together. There's been Judas, there was a Judas in the first church. There's been Judases in other churches. There's been deceivers. There's been, uh, you know, all kinds of professors that were not possessors. And it shall be till the end of time. But at some point, at the end of time, just like in the parable of the tares and the wheat, there's going to be a severing. There's going to be a harvest. There's going to be a dividing asunder of that which is the genuine and that which is the counterfeit. And that is exactly what the Lord's referring to when He says, shall be rooted up. What's He talking about? False disciples, not real Christians, religious counterfeits. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5 referred to these individuals as having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. The Pharisees had a form of godliness, right? But Jesus warned them of the leaven of the Pharisees, of the poison of their legalistic doctrine. And here he says in verse 14, they're blind leaders of the blind. They're both going to fall into the ditch. This is who he's talking about. Professors, but not possessors. Blind leaders of the blind. Now, you may think some pretty good things about these type of individuals, but there is nothing good about them at all. They're of Satan's planning. Let me, let me put it to you like this. Jesus chose the twelve disciples. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't surprised about Judas, okay? I, I'm, I'm saying that. But, who was really moving Judas? Who was really working in Judas? He was the devil's plant, wasn't he? And God designed it for a purpose to be so. He could have prevented it. It was God's purpose. But it was the devil's planning. And the devil loves to plant fakery, frauds, and counterfeits in the Lord's church. I'll be brief. But I'll say this. The biggest trouble I've had in 30 years of ministry is, I believe, trying to feed sheep food to some goats. I'm just going to be honest. And I believe that's a tendency of about any pastor. Because the Satan's going, if God's doing something, just like planting the wheat, Satan's going to get in the middle of it just as quick as he can. And try to get as many tares in there as he can to disrupt. And you know what a weed will do to a garden. It'll sap away, suck away, and take away from that which is desirable. That, that's Satan's business with the church. And he's, he's been successful in it, and he will be successful in it, and we must be warned against it, fight against it, etc., etc. There's not a pastor alive that doesn't do that. I mean, we'd be naive to think that it's ever going to be any different. 
The parable itself says tares among the wheat. What should we expect? Better be watching out for the tares. <laughs> you know? And be watching out for wolves in sheep's clothing, right? So this is what we're talking about. Professors, but not professors. Let me read Jude to you that discusses some very graphic and terrible characteristics of these professors, but not possessors. I'll read starting at verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for a reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Now these are religious people. These are counterfeit Christians. They are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Look at this. This is really gets to the point. Clouds without water. They look like it. How many rain clouds have you seen that never produced a drop of rain? We see a lot of them out here in the west of New Mexico, don't we? I'm, I've told Brenda over the years that we've lived out here so many times, she said, well, it might rain. She'd be looking at a cloud that don't get your hopes up. More often than not, it's just a look, isn't it? And more often than not, what do we get? We get the wind, but we don't get the rain, right? Clouds without water. What good are they? They show up. They don't do nothing, and they disappear. What clouds do you remember? Probably the ones that produce rain. <laughs> you know, the ones that did something. Read on with me. They are carried about of winds. You know, clouds are, aren't they? What does the Bible warn us about when it comes to doctrine and truth? Beware of those who are carried about with every wind of doctrine. What is a wind of doctrine? heresy. It's deception. It says here, whose fruit withereth. Now, again, we can delineate here and talk about Jesus said, what? You'll know them by your fruit. Well, the unbelieving's fruit's always going to wither. It's not going to come to maturity. It's not going to be worth eating. It's not going to amount to a hill of beans. If you give it enough time, it'll wither. I am sad to say, over the years of the time that I've been preaching in every church I've been in, I have seen more withering than I ever thought I would. What can I say about it? What can anybody say? There's only one thing to be said. They went out from us that might be manifest that they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. They had fruit for a little while, but what happened over time? Withered. I was trying to cultivate that tree. Trying to get that tree to produce more fruit. And what happened? It withered away. That's what will always happen. That's the sow to the mire and, and the dog to the monarch. Notice it says, without fruit. It had fruit. It sprung up. But like the parable of the sower, the sun either burned it up or the thorns choked it out. But either way, it didn't amount to nothing. So withered fruit is no fruit. Remember the, withered, the, the fig tree Jesus cursed and it withered away? Notice it says this, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. What do you think twice dead means? It appeared to be alive, but it died. I think that's referring to one thing, there is visible life, you know, and that life, that mortal life's going to die, but I think it's talking about twice dead, meaning the faith was dead. It was a real living person who claimed to be a Christian and lo and behold they died. But you know what? They died with a dead faith. And in judgment it will be manifested twice dead. 
Died in the body, faith was dead. Died with a dead faith. Read on. Waging waves of the sea. You know, again, you know that foamy stuff? When the waves beat against the shore, it's a violent thing. What is that? Foaming out to their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Those are terrible things that it's speaking of characteristics about false professors. Well, where do these things come from? I've got to be brief here and wrap this up, but every man-made, every man-originated false religion is what we're talking about. Satan is behind it, but some man is the instrument by which he is planning. What's he doing? He's duplicating what the Lord did. I mean, go back to the wheat and the tares. That man, that good man, tilled a field, planted good seed. Who did it? His servants. Well, in the nighttime when men slept, who come in there and sowed the other seeds? The bad servants, right? The bad guys. Where'd they come from? The devil. God's got his people. <laughs> the devil's got his. We're sowing the good seed. He's sowing heresy. He's sowing deception. And you mark it down. Every false religion. He's a wolf in sheep clothing. Why does the Bible warn about false prophets, false teachers, all of this? Because they sow heresy. They sow seeds of deception. This is what the Lord's referring to when He says they're blind leaders of the blind. Some of the major religions of the world today. Some of them have been around a long time. Some man started them. The devil's behind every bit of it. These are the ones that are going to be severed. False teachers, false prophets, produce false believers and false churches. And the planning is of their own deceptive hands. Own deceptive judgment. Let me briefly read this and then we'll wrap this up, make some closing comments. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Uh, reference to the blind leaders of the blind here. Jesus said this, again to these hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisees, religious, but without the power thereof. 23.15, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you can pass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Verse 16, he calls them blind guides. You know, this is one of the most heartbreaking things to a child of God, to a real believer, is to know, see, and observe the success of Satan in false religion, false doctrine, false gospel, and false believers. We could put it like this. All that's doing is driving nails in somebody's coffin. They're already dead. They're already doomed. They're already damned. And all they did was just secure their damnation. That, that's the bottom line for which they are accountable. Blind leaders of the blind. That is so sad. That's why you and I and every true child of God hates every false way. I hate works, by salva works for salvation because it's not the right way. I hate every 
denomination, everything that propagates a way of salvation other than by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because it damns people to hell. They're headed there on their own, but they sure don't need that. That just shuts the lid down on them except God be determined to deliver them. And God does that. God saves people out of false religion. He saves all kinds of people out of false religion. We come out of something false that we were thinking ourselves. In judgment, there is a judgment. And in the parable, the Bible says the angels are the instruments by which this division of gathering the wheat into the barn and pulling up the tares by the roots and putting them in a pile and burning them is going to take place. I don't know what, when, where, how, and the details all that's going to be, but I trust God can take care of it, don't you? I mean, right now the Bible tells us that when a child of God dies, like Lazarus, it happened to Lazarus, I believe it happens to every child of God, the angels carry him and carry the elect of God to heaven when they die. So they're already involved in a harvest, a day-by-day harvest when people die, aren't they? But in the end of the world, the Bible says the angels will be the instruments of harvest. They will be the ones that'll be involved in gathering everything up to be judged and determine is it wheat or is it a tear. And the Bible is very, very clear on this because again, to be plucked up by the roots is to die. I mean, that's just got one thing that you can think of in reference to, it's going to die. We've all done that. I mean, we, you know, when your garden quits producing, you got to pull the, the stuff up if you're going to plant next year, you know, or turn it under, do something, you know, and some stuff don't turn under very good without moisture and rot. I found that out out here. I tried that when I first started gardening. I'm getting off. But no, it's an illustration. You know, well, you know, in Arkansas, you plowed things under. The time it comes spring, there was enough moisture, it rotted. You know, I mean, it fertilized the ground. Out here it don't. When it comes spring, it's still there. It just dried up, and there it is. So I quit doing that. It made a mess of the garden. But root it up. When you pull something up and you throw it out in the hot New Mexico sun, it don't, it don't look good very long, does it? It don't take long. Do you see it wilting, withering? It die. It's dead. The death manifests itself. It dries up and blows away. People are not going to dry up and blow away. They're going to be gathered up and burnt, the Bible says. Cast into the fire. Let me read you a reference to this and we'll wrap this up. Jesus said it in different ways in different places. In Matthew's Gospel still, chapter 3 and verse 10, this statement is said, and now also the axis... Well, this is... a. This is not Jesus saying this. This is John the Baptist. But same reference. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So what Jesus is saying, John is saying the same thing. You know, I've cut down a lot of trees. Chainsaw, axe, sprouts, different things. And some things, if you cut it off above ground, you ain't getting rid of it. It'll come right back. It'll sprout right back. Like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you know. But if you cut it off in the roots, the majority of stuff, it's going to get it. I mean, we know it's not everything. I, I wish you could 
pull bindweed up by the roots, but you can't ever get all the root out, you know, and different things, right, that we're tormented with because of the fall. But the idea is the same. You go to the source. You get right down to the nitty-gritty of it, and you take an axe to the root, and that's almost similar to plucking it up by the roots. You've got down to the very life and essence of that being. Uh, 7 and 19 of Matthew, we read the reference again. And this one is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. So Jesus is talking about these false Christians here. They're not of the Lord's planning. They are of the devil's planning. They're of men's planning. They've been planted by deception, by lies, by falsehood, and not the truth, and they will not endure. In judgment, the Lord will uproot, pluck up, pull up, bind up, and cast into a lake of fire. All of these. It's going to be a sad day. Let's end on a positive note. The Lord's planning. It's grace from start to finish, like I told you at the very beginning, is it not? I mean, think about the grace of God, examine your own soul. What can you say today? Where do you stand with God? Those that will hear me on audio. Where do you stand with God? Is it your own planning? Is it somebody else's planning? Or is it the Lord's planning? You know, isn't it going to be so sad in judgment? That the Lord's going to say, depart, I never knew you. And they're going to say, but brother, so-and-so told me and taught me and I... Too bad. Blind leaders of the blind. If you're a child of God today, you can look into the depths of your own soul and you'll see one thing if you're truly saved. It's all of grace. God did it all. He started it. He's doing it. And He's not finished yet. You're still here. You're alive. I mean, God is cultivating it, isn't it? Philippians 1, 6, He had begun a good work in you, will perform it until that day. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure, 2, 13. I mean, the fact that we're here and alive today means we're still in the garden. And we can still produce fruit. But God did it all. I can look back. God initiated it. God planted His Word in my heart. God planted the Holy Spirit in my heart. God has been nurturing, cultivating, preserving, working, watering, fertilizing ever since. I'm happy to say that. I can't brag about it. I can brag about Him. But it's a wonderful thing to be able to look into your soul and look into Scripture and say, I am the product of the Lord's planning. I am what I am by His grace and by His mercy and whatever fruit is being born, if there's any being born and there is being born, whether we see it or not, it's to His honor and to His glory. He did it all. The Lord's planning. We are indeed, if saved by His grace, trees of righteousness, plants of righteousness, all for His glory. And we never have to worry about being plucked up. It's a frightful thing, but we realize that applies to unbelievers because the Lord will preserve His own. Are you a product of the Lord's planning today? Are you the product of somebody else's planning or your own planning? 
if you are, you have this fear, should have the fear of one day being plucked up. The thing to do now is obey the gospel and be of the Lord's planning. God bless this to your hearing.